Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Today is Friday, September 23rd, and we are going to be going over the book of Nahum. We're going to, this is part three. I, we are not going to finish the book tonight. Hopefully, we'll finish it next week. Uh, I know we'll finish it next week. It's not going to be hard. So <clears throat> if you're having trouble finding the book of Nahum, it is on page 1,190 in my Bible. I don't know how much that'll help anyone else. And let's have a word of prayer, and we'll jump in. Lord, uh, we do love you greatly. And Lord, I am so thankful that we can come to you in prayer, and you will hear our prayers. God, you are our creator and our savior. And God, I just want to ask that you would please uh, forgive us for any shortcomings or faults, uh, any sins. And uh, God, help us to just do a better job of being more like you and less like us in this coming week. We thank you, Lord, for this building we can meet in, that we can uh, get together every week and talk about the Bible. And God, I just want to ask that you would really speak through me tonight. Uh, I pray, Lord, if anyone has any uh, um, you know, questions about this book uh, that bring them up, we'd be able to get our questions answered. God, I do pray that we would all learn something about the Bible that we didn't know before. And uh, Lord, we just need your help. So please guide and direct. We love you greatly. Amen. Okay. And here come some more troops. We're going to let them come in. They know right where they're going. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Serenity. Hey, Nick. Hey, Darren. All right. Sorry. <laughs> that sadness started early today. All right. That's okay. You're not going to get everyone to duck under the camera as they're walking around. That just won't work. The average height of the men in this church is like six and a half feet tall. <laughs> so if we ever grow, well, yeah, Louie and I are on, <laughs> we set the curve on the other side. So if we ever put together a, a sports team, it's going to be volleyball or basketball, no softball team for this church. All right, so uh, Nahum part three, uh, we're going to get into the end of chapter two, and we're going to talk more about the subject of this book. What is this book about? Very good. Nahum is or was a prophet. What was Nahum talking about? Who was he talking to? He was talking about Nineveh. So this is a prophet to the Gentiles. This was not a prophet who was going and speaking to the nation of Israel. Most of the prophets in the Bible, God had messages for his people. In this case, and who was the other famous prophet that preached to Nineveh? Jonah, very good. Uh, these two guys were prophets to the Gentiles. And Nahum and Jonah specifically both preached to the city of Nineveh. Uh, that, that was their whole message. So <clears throat> short story is that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to tell them that they were toast. And that was the message. Uh, Jonah didn't give any futuristic prophecies in his book. He just went and said, you guys have messed up and it's over. You got... I think he said, you have 40 days and you're toast. And that's all Jonah thought he was going to have to do. And uh, to Jonah's discouragement, what happened to Nineveh? 
they repented. Okay, these evil, horrible people, they got right with God, and we're going we're gonna to look back on the book of Jonah uh, here in a minute. And they repented, and they got right, and what did God do with Nineveh, or what did he not do? Yeah, he spared them. He did not destroy them. And we're going to read a funny verse or two about that. And then what we find is that uh, over the course of, oh, 50, 60 years later, what did Nineveh do? That's right. They repented of their repentance. All right. So, yep, they went back to Dagon, their God. They had lots of idols. So Nineveh, this massive city that was horribly wicked, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, they got right with God, and then it only took them 60 years, and they went back to their uh, – well, no, that's not true. Um, they went back to their evil, and then 60 years after Jonah preached his message – Nahum uh, preaches a message to the Ninevites, and it is that they are done. It's over, and there's no second chances. All right, so we were in Nahum chapter 2, and we stopped in verse 6. So let's read verses 7 to 13. That's to the end of the chapter, and then we'll finish up chapter 2 and talk about these verses and we'll go forward from there. So if you're following along, Nahum chapter 2, verse number 7, we read, And Huzab shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together. And much pain is in all the loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Now, when we read through this, Sometimes these prophecies are hard to wrap our head around, like, what is this guy talking about? But this is one of the most descriptive portions of prophecy explaining what's about to happen 40 years later, and history tells us uh, exactly how Nineveh, the great city, falls, and it is unbelievably accurate. I mean, that what we're supposed to expect right it's the bible isn't like vaguely accurate god is you know completely accurate amazingly uh accurate okay in verse 11 where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion even the old lion walked and the lions whelp and none made them afraid the lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. All right. So let's just talk briefly for a second. <clears throat> about Nineveh. So does anyone know where Nineveh is? What's it near? Present day what? How about the country? Let's start with that. What country is it? What what country today is Nineveh in? Close. Iraq. 
Okay, very good. It's in present-day Iraq, and it is near the city of Mosul. It is way up north. It's way up north. Yeah, it's it's a long ways from Babylon. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yes, Carlos. Yes, Mosul is present-day I, Mosul, Iraq is presently there. It is on the other side of the river of the Tigris River. Oh, I just answered a question. Okay, so Nineveh is here, and what river runs right down the side of it to the, to the west? It is not the Mississippi. Okay, it is not the Euphrates. Darren, very good, the Tigris. Okay, so <clears throat> this is Nineveh. It is not to scale. This is the great city. Now, Part, part of what we're going to talk about here, I just want to review very quickly. How did, first of all, who was fighting against Nineveh? Who destroyed Nineveh? Okay, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, who led the Babylonians. Very good. Also, if we want to talk in a more biblical sense, who destroyed Nineveh? God did, and he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians as his instrument. Okay, so... Uh, what were the Babylonians doing to Nineveh? What was their plan of attack? Mac? Yes, they were going to lay siege to it. So they surrounded the city, and they laid siege to it for how long? Nope, not seven years. Nick? Three months. Very good. Now, typically, when you lay siege to a city, especially a well-fortified city, we're talking years. That's what we read through history. And Nineveh was the fortified city. It had bigger walls, thicker walls. You know, it was made to be defended. And they literally stood on those walls and laughed at nations that would attack them. Three months later, what happened? God sends the rains and the Tigris River floods and it wipes out one of those walls. It just erodes the dirt underneath it. The walls just come tumbling down and the Babylonians just walk right in. Okay, and let me tell you, the Ninevites were not expecting that. It was an act of God that was that brought this massively powerful city to its knees. Okay, so now let's get into, with that being said, these verses are going to make a little more sense. So verse 7, uh, we read, Huzzab shall be led away. Who is that? No, you know how we know? Because next it says, Huzzab shall be led away. She shall be brought up. So it's a, it's a female name. How did you not know the name Huzzab was, was a woman? I remember in grade school, there were like four girls named Huzzab in my kindergarten class. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> that's a Ninevite name. Who, who, who do you think she was? She was important enough to make it into the Bible. She was. She was the queen, okay, of Nineveh. Uh, Huzzab, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so forgive me. Uh, the queen of Nineveh falls into the hands of the enemy. And it says that the queen's maids will be mourning as they lead the queen. So she has, you know, kind of her procession there um, as they uh, lead the queen away. Now, in verse 8, when the city is flooded like a pool of water, uh, nobody stands their ground. 
In verse 8, it says, But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. So what happened? When that, when that wall fell and the city was flooded, what did all the Ninevite soldiers do? They ran. And it says, it is quoting one of the officers of the Ninevite army. And he is crying, stand, stand. He's telling his soldiers, do not flee. And what does it say? How does it describe them when they flee? They don't look back. Do you understand the level of panic that we're talking about here? Not only do all the soldiers disobey their commanders, not even one looks back as they flee. When those walls came down, the Ninevite soldiers thought all hope is lost. It says not one shall look back. None of them. That must have been a sight. The walls came down, the Babylonians started marching in, and the Ninevites just took off running. They didn't even turn around and look back for a moment. They knew that they were conquered, and they were just running for their lives. Carlos? Um, The place God burned down because they sinned. You got to be a little more specific than that. So are we talking about Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay, let's keep going here. Uh, verse 9. The invading army is encouraged to plunder. We read, take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold. Do you understand that when you were a soldier, one of the benefits of conquering a city like this was that you just went and took what you wanted? That was, that was your bonus. Yeah, it wasn't like today where, you know, okay, all the, all the bad guys, they throw down their weapons and we bring them in and we feed them and, you know, we put them over here. And I mean, nope. They killed everybody they wanted. They took whatever they wanted. That was your bonus. And they are encouraged here. Take ye the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. Okay, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. So they are told that there is no end of the wealth that they can steal. <clears throat> now in verse 10, verse 10 describes two things. Number one, the city is destroyed. Number two, the inhabitants of Nineveh are so frightened that their hearts melt and that their knees knock together. Mm -hmm. Give me it. Really? So when they stripped it bare, so just the rocks, yeah. Take it all. Yeah. Like when they dug it up and checked it out, 
Yeah. It, yeah. And along those lines, remember, how tall were the walls around Nineveh? Yeah, they said 100 feet tall, okay? Nineveh was destroyed so completely that we didn't know it existed for almost 2,000 years. Literally, it was lost to history. It was ground to dust and gone. It was so completely destroyed that people called the Bible historically inaccurate, thought the Bible was a lie and wrote it off as false because the Bible talked about this once great powerful city that no one has ever heard of. When people marched through that area, there was no evidence whatsoever of a city. It was not discovered until 1847. It was completely ground to dust. So like Darren said, everything of value was stripped. The walls were torn down. Yeah, pulled the copper pipes out of the, yep, anything. Yep, yes, mom. The Ninevites? Yeah, so here, let me, let me read this. Okay, this is from the book, The Rise and Fall of Assyria. It was pillaged and burned and then razed to the ground so completely as to evidence the implacable hatred enkindled in the minds of subject nations by the fierce and cruel Assyrian government. So one thing you got to remember is that the Assyrians were oppressive people to every nation they touched, anyone they could. They threatened them. They put them under tribute. They taxed them. They, were, they ruled with an iron fist. And it said that when, when Assyria's capital was destroyed, it was destroyed with all of the hatred built up from all those nations over all those centuries. Okay, another, another book said Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged Babylon. The city was put to the torch, the population was slaughtered or enslaved, and the palace so recently built by Ashurbanipal was sacked and destroyed. Okay? At one blow, Assyria disappeared from history. That's what the history books say about the takeover of Assyria. So you got to remember, there was no city left there for anyone to live in. It was, yeah, it was literally leveled. Yep. So everybody was killed and who wasn't killed was enslaved and taken away. But when the, when the Babylonian mar armies marched away from Nineveh, if you turned around, you couldn't tell that there was ever a city there. Yeah. And remember, that is the destruction of God. When God decides that your day is up and your time is due, Okay. It, is, it is easy to see the destruction of God versus the destruction of man. There is a difference. Okay, so let's see. Where were we? Okay, so verse 10. Let's take a look at verse 10 because th this is very descriptive. Uh, she is empty and void and waste, Okay, describing the city. It's empty. There's nothing there. It's void, and it is waste. There's no reason to go back there. 
There's nothing there for you. Now, it describes the Ninevites. It says, the heart melteth, the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. So let's look at these four very descriptive ideas. Their heart melts. What are we talking about there? So I think that's true, but I mean literally. I think this is describing a physical condition, several of them. So we are talking about here with the hearts melting. I think we're talking about literal heart failure. People are dropping dead of a heart attack from what they see coming. Now, it says their knees knock together. Yeah. Where else do we see that in the Bible? There's only one other place that I can think of where the Bible talks about that. Yep. Nope. You just taught through the book at your Bible study. Yeah, the book of Daniel. <laughs> okay, so what ends up happening is the Israelites are taken captive to Babylon. And in Babylon, several generations later, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Okay, we believe it's his grandson, I think it is, but correct me if I'm wrong, Belteshazzar. He is throwing a party. Now, when they took away everything from the nation of Israel, from Jerusalem, it says that they took away the brass uh, lavers and the flesh pots and the hooks and the, the brazen altar and all the implements from the temple. All the things that were made of silver and gold and brass, all of these things were carted away to Babylon and they were set in what we find from the ruins of Babylon, the king across the street from his palace, he set up a museum where all the conquered nations that they took over, they had all the wonderful things that they pillaged from those nations and they set it up in this museum. So Belteshazzar is having a party and he says, go get that stuff from Jerusalem. And they bring all the implements over and he says, take the cups and fill them with wine. We're getting drunk. And he takes these vessels that were meant to be sacred for the use of God by the priests in the temple. And he starts getting drunk with all his party members. And then he turns and he looks and he sees a hand writing on the wall, just a hand. And it writes out a message. And the message says, you are going to die tonight. And it said that his knees smote together. I think it said something about his bowels being loosed. Yeah. Okay. So he saw what we would assume is the hand of God writing a message specifically to that man saying, you are going to die tonight. And he did. Okay. So his knees knocked together. He was so scared that he was shivering and shaking. So this here is telling us that the inhabitants, maybe the soldiers, maybe everyone that was there, but you got to remember, what did God call the Babylonians? What term did he use in Jeremiah to describe them? He called them the hammer 
They were the hammer because every nation they went up to, they crushed them into pieces. They were utterly destroyed. People did not want the Babylonians coming to lay siege to the city you lived in. So the people, when they saw the Babylonians marching into their city, their knees smote together. Okay, they were terrified. Okay, let's look at the next thing. It says their knees smote together and much pain in all their loins. So what I think this is, I think this is kidney failure. Do you know that that can happen due to extreme stress? Now, remember, how many people lived in Nineveh? Yeah, well, that's a good answer. A lot. And we're going to see, now we have specific numbers, and we're going to get into it when we get into the book of Jonah here in a second. We're going to read just a couple verses out of it. Washington? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you, okay? My point is this. In Nineveh, we're dealing with a city of a million people, maybe two million people, okay? That's my guess, maybe as low as, say, half a million. There is no way there's less than half a million people here, okay? And I'm going to, the Bible gives us some numbers on it. What happened to all of those people? They were all killed. They all died that day. Now, some were taken slaves, how long does it take for an army to kill a half million to two million people? I'm, I'm thinking it takes a little while. It might have taken, yeah, a couple days or weeks. Yeah, wasn't a, it wasn't a fast process. And we know this because genocide has happened in countries in Africa where all of a sudden a new regime comes in and they're killing the people with machine guns and it takes weeks. Okay, so this is my point. You had an entire city of possibly one or two million people who were all being hunted down and executed, and it took days or weeks. What would your life be like if you were running from building to building, hiding, trying to survive, knowing that if any soldier found you, they would cut you down where you were? Would you sleep? Would you eat? How would your GI system be working? Your knees would be knocking together. You would suffer from heart failure. You would have kidney failure. You would be so overwhelmed with stress and anxiety that you would die. That's what this, these verses are describing. It was such a horrible time for the Ninevites. It is hard to describe it in words. Not only that, Folks, I haven't even gotten to the explanation of the wickedness of the Ninevites that every country knew about. When they were going in to kill the Ninevites, it wasn't quick and painless. They were getting out their pent-up aggression and hatred of this people that spanned Literally a century. 
So I think they were absolutely just keeling over and dying of fright. Okay, and then last it, in this verse, verse 10, it says, the city burns and their faces become black with soot. Okay, verse 11, the lions. Uh, the lions were a symbol of power. It says, where is the dwelling of the lions? Uh, they were the Ninevites. And the question is a rhetorical one. Where are the lions? They're gone. Where are these lions that we once knew about as the Ninevites? Uh, verse 12, the king of Nineveh and all his princes made it their business through all forms of violence and extortion to enrich themselves and their families. They took advantage of all the people and nations around them. They tore them in pieces and they stored up for themselves. And that's what verse 12 is describing. And then in verse 13, the first in verse 13, the first five verses, or I'm sorry, the first five words of this verse say it all. Behold, I am against thee. Who is the I? God. You have to remember that this nation was given an opportunity and they squandered it. God says, I am against thee. So Nineveh will not prey on any nation again. It says in the end of verse 13, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. What does that mean? Nineveh's messengers shall no more be heard. Now, this is a tough one. You got to know something to history. Nineveh's messengers will no more be heard. Washington, give it a guess. Nope. Carlos? Okay, that's along the lines. Who were the messengers? Okay, how about this? What was Nineveh famous for? Now, that, again, is one of Patrick's famously terribly broad questions that could be answered lots of ways. From history, after the excavation of Nineveh, what did we find in Nineveh that made them famous? Throughout history, Nineveh had the first what? Not the first church. Wasn't the first bank. We found, Not the first university, but you're getting closer. Nope. Nope. Where do all those students go on the weekend? No, they have they have papers to write and Nineveh had the world's first library. Yep. The world's oldest known library was founded sometime in the 7th century BC for quote royal contemplation of the Assyrian ruler Ashurbanipal. Okay, we went over the rulers of Nineveh in order when we started this thing, and Ashurbanipal uh, started the first library. It was his private book collection, and it was in the capital city of Nineveh. The site included some 30,000 cuneiform tablets organized according to subject matter. 
it was one of the greatest archaeological finds in the history of the world. They were all preserved. Okay, in 1847, Austin Henry Laird finally unearthed the fabled city of Nineveh. And with it were those cuneiform tablets. Yes, Washington. They were tablets. Yep, all carved, carved in stone. 30,000 of them. They do still exist. I think they're in the British Museum of History. And that's my guess because that's where you find all of the Persian relics. I'd have to look it up, but if I had to guess, I would say the British Museum of History. Yep. Most things in the Middle East that are great archaeological finds um, end up in the British Museum of Natural, Natural History. MacArthur? Not that we know of, but the problem is uh, the history we have about Nineveh, a good portion of it was written by the Babylonians because nobody, yeah, yep. So, you know, there is a lot of stuff that, the, what, what's the great problem that we struggle with, with history? History was written by the victor. So, <laughs> you know, you usually don't, bring up your faults and failures if you're the nation that just destroyed this other nation you write the history and you usually sound pretty good okay but with that being said we do have and we're going to read about in a second some history about Nineveh and their kings written from other countries yes mom so I think the beginning, uh, it said that the Babylonians who they didn't destroy they took the slaves yes so people didn't survive correct but they were slaves yeah, and I doubt they were writing books, you know, <laughs> in, in slavery. Yeah. So, yes, there were some survivors, but, yeah, they, they weren't doing well. Okay, so let's take a look at a little bit of uh, – we're going to get into Jonah here in a second. Okay, so I want to give you an idea here. And this this might come as a shock or sound strange, but it is a wonderful, encouraging story and it has to do with God's love for the Ninevites. Did you know that God loved the Ninevites? Okay. The Ninevites were a wicked, evil, horrible people, right? But what did the Ninevites do that was so impressive that God changed his mind? Okay, let's, let's look. Go to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read a couple of verses, and this is, this, is, this is important. Jonah is a short book. As a matter of fact, we might want to do it when we're done with this. It's only four chapters. So if we go through a couple of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we can really kind of bang them out. What's it? You're good? Okay. Is someone asking a question online? Okay. Not an important one anyhow? Okay. <clears throat> We live stream these so people can write a comment and ask a question. And I try to answer them, or at least I try to make fun of them online so they feel, you know, recognized. Okay, let's go to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read from verses, verse 3 to 10, and let's take a look at this. So Jonah arose and went on to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, this was after what event in Jonah's life? 
after the whale. Very good. Okay, so God has Jonah's attention, right? <laughs> Jonah is, yep, yes, sir. Got it. Okay, God, I'm just we're gonna do that and no problem. Yes, sir. Okay, that was Jonah's attitude here. So Jonah arose and went on to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey, big city. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message. That was it. Eight words. It's what Jonah's message was to Nineveh. Eight words. Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. The entire city, millions of people, from the king down to the slaves. Verse six, for word came on to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. What does that mean? That means everyone in the nation is doing it under penalty of death. When the king and the nobles decree something, that's not like, eh, speed limit's 75, but, you know, 80 is customary, right? Five over, that's, that's pretty common. No, when the king made a decree, everyone stopped what they were doing and listened up, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God loved the Ninevites. The Ninevites, at this point, were more obedient than any of the Jews in Israel. They heard of the wickedness they were doing, and the king proclaimed a fast throughout the land, and it went from the king down to the slaves and to the animals. The animals put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and begged God not to do evil unto them. It was the greatest revival in the history of the world. Okay, sackcloth. This may sound unusual to modern people, but sackcloth was literally, if you think about it, like a, um, 
burlap sack, very much like a burlap sack. They were made out of, you know, goat's hair and camel's hair, things like this, but they were rough. They were very itchy. Okay. And they were so on purpose and people would put these on as clothes as a constant reminder of what they were supposed to be doing. They were, they were humbling themselves and making sure that they were not comfortable because they wanted to stay focused on what they were doing. In this case, begging God to forgive them of their evil. <clears throat> Ashes symbolized ruin and destruction. The fire burns up everything in its path and it leaves behind nothing but ashes. So ashes serve as a symbol of desolation and complete defeat. There is nothing left. It is the absolute end of us when we sit in ashes. Okay, it is to symbolize that we have nothing else that we can lose. There is nothing else that is more important. Okay, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3.19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return onto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. It is a reminder of just how small and insignificant we are in comparison to the God who created us. And they would literally take off their clothes and put on a burlap sack, cut a hole in it, slip it on over their head, and they would take ashes and put them on their head. And they would sit there and they would mourn. That's what it was. It was a process of mourning, as if someone you dearly loved died. Okay, there are times we read about in the Bible where people refuse to be comforted. They just wanted to sit in sackcloth and ashes. They did not want to forget the pain that they were in. And the entire nation, millions of people, were doing this before God, down to the animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would imagine domesticated and non-domestic, but I don't know. I would have to do a little bit of, you know, research. Are you thinking? Uh huh. Yeah. So I'll tell you. Think, think, think with me here, okay? One thing we need to recognize when we read through this book is that it is meant to be a learning tool for us. God is teaching us something. And when we read this, what you're describing, Wayne, sounds ridiculous. But I guarantee that the bears had sackcloth and ashes on. Okay, now people look at me and they're like, mm, how did that happen? Okay, let me ask you this. How did every animal on earth march to one location two by two in pairs and in some groups of seven and get on a boat? Okay, it wasn't a problem for God. God did that and God was making a point here. And people 
our problem as Christians is we write off everything and we read in the Bible is like, well, that has to be allegorical. That has to be because there's no way that could happen. No, it happened. Okay, the, the cows and the goats and the sheep and the chickens were in sackcloth and they sat there in ashes. And it was such a sight that nobody could believe it was going on. It was insane. But that's what was happening. And God said, that is what repentance looks like. Yeah. We want to know what's it going to take to heal America. We want to know what's it going to take to get right with God and get on God's side and, and be used to God for great things. God says, this is what repentance looks like. It is total. There is no, hu- there is no pride left. It is utter humiliation before God, recognizing that we are but dust. And God said, those people are going to live. That whole nation. Yep. A generation. And Nineveh was known as the most wicked city on earth. God is telling us something there. There is. There is hope. I don't care who it is. People can get right with God. The wicked can get saved. They can turn. They can change. And if they can, I can surely get right with God and have God on my side, no matter what I came from. But this is what it looks like. So many Christians today are like, boy, I'd sure like it if God used me for something. Yeah, that'd be kind of nice. But there's no level of seriousness as far as God. This is how right I'm going to get with you. It's going to be insane. It's going to look supernatural. So the king down to the slaves... The animals fasted and wore sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so now let's go to Jonah chapter 4, and let's look at verse 11. Jonah chapter 4 in verse 11, God speaking to Jonah. Now this is after Jonah gives the message. This is after Nineveh repents, and then God says, I'm changing my mind. You guys are going to live. So then Jonah, what's his reaction? Yeah. Really? They listened? He was upset. He hated the Ninevites. And listen to what God says. God says, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle. Okay, so first question, how many is six score thousand? MacArthur. Oh, I didn't do the math yet. I was hoping I could figure it out real quick. 
if you're not reading it out of the King James and, and your Bible tells you the number, I don't want to hear it. Okay. I want someone to do the math. Okay. Louie, what'd you say? 120,000. A score is 20. Six score is 120,000. Okay. So we're looking at 120,000. What? No. Children. How do we know? It describes them as not being able to discern between their left and their right. We're not talking about dum-dums here. Okay. Yeah. The, okay. We are talking about children. What age, at what age can kids determine their left from their right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Certainly. But what, what age is kindergarten by five? Right. By five years old, we're standing there, pledge allegiance. Now they'll mix it up some. OK, but you see what I'm saying? What we're talking about is we're talking about children. That's where we get the numbers of possibly up to, you know, a million, maybe two million people because of the age of the children. So then you got men, you got women, you got elderly Okay, on up. So we got to say there has to be no less than a half a million people in the city. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what was Jonah doing when God asked him this question? No. Now he started out moping and he was upset. And then God asks him this question. Where was Jonah? What was he doing? So Jonah went into Nineveh. He walks roughly a third to halfway into the city. He makes his big speech, which was eight words. And then what did Jonah do? He did not go to the bar. <laughs> he did leave Nineveh. How far did he go? Yeah, that's right. He went to a hillside to watch. Now, whether he was on a hillside, I don't remember from the text, but he did go just a little ways and he sat down and he made some popcorn and he was waiting to see how God was going to destroy the city. That's what he was doing. He was waiting to see, is it going to be fire? Is he going to open up the earth and just have the whole city get sucked in? How's he going to do it? Yep. And, uh, and he was upset. Okay. Now go with me to Ezekiel 33, 11. Uh, there's a couple verses here that you should see because, uh, one day you're going to need these verses to explain to your Christian friends that don't read the Bible, the true nature and character of God, Ezekiel chapter 33. So if you're in Jonah, go to the left. If you are in Nahum, it's to the left. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Yes. Oh, yeah, Lamentations is right in, the, right in there. Okay, Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Did you read that? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye. Turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God talks about this multiple times in the book of Ezekiel. You can look up more in chapter 18, verses 23, and 18 verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 32 in the book of Ezekiel, how God talks about how he has no desire for the wicked to die. 
He has a desire for them to turn from their ways and to live. That's God's desire. He sees he gets no pleasure from punishing the wicked. Why does God punish the wicked? What characteristic of God requires that he punish the wicked? That he is just. God is just. And we should take comfort in that. That God is just. Okay, so with that, let us get into Nahum chapter 3, and let's read just a little bit, and we'll set the stage for next week when we wrap up this wonderful book. Let's look at Nahum, and let's read verse 1, and uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and that's as far as we're going to get in chapter 3 until next week. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, woe! To the bloody city, it is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. Nahum calls Nineveh the city of blood. And it is known for its cruelty, and we read more about that in Nahum chapter 3. There was idolatry, there was witchcraft, there was whoredoms, but verse 1 concentrates on blood. It was a bloody city. Now, I want to explain just a little bit about uh, the kings of Nineveh and what they were known for. Uh, Asher Nazarpal II boasted, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. He also wrote of mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. Uh, You can read about this in a book, The Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylonia by Daniel Luckenbill. Shalmaneser II boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. He said, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. So remember, this is what Nineveh was known for. Nineveh was known for being horribly wicked and cruel to anyone that they fought against. And this is why when the Babylonians saw the wall come down, they unleashed a hatred of centuries against this cruel oppressor. Sennacherib, Does anyone remember what Sennacherib was famous for? He was one of only a couple Ninevite rulers that we talked about. He what? Uh, Sennacherib was the Ninevite king who attacked the southern kingdom of Israel. What was the name of the southern kingdom of Israel when they split apart? We called the southern kingdom what? Judah. Very good. We called it Judah. So the northern kingdom was already taken away, 
and the southern kingdom, Sennacherib decided, I'm going to go invade it because we had such a great time invading the northern kingdom and taking everyone away and killing a bunch of people. So Sennacherib invaded the southern kingdom. <coughs> you can read about this in the book of Second Kings. And what happened to Sennacherib's army? An angel came in the night and killed all of them. 185,000 soldiers died in one night from one angel because God said, nope, you ain't destroying the southern kingdom. That's where my boy David lives. Okay, so Sennacherib was famous. He was the king that fought against Israel and was destroyed terribly so. So uh, Sennacherib wrote this of his enemies. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the continents, the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Ashurbanipal uh, described his treatment of captured uh, leaders in this way. I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger through his jaw. I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel. In his campaign against Egypt, Ashurbanipal also boasted that his officials hung Egyptian corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them. This is what the Ninevites were known for. That's why when Nahum describes them as the bloody city, this wasn't poetic language. They were horribly cruel to anybody that stood against them. And this again, we can look at it in several ways. Number one, uh, God is just. Number two, there is hope. When people repent and put their faith and trust in the Lord, okay, God will not destroy them. They become his. And it is hard for us to say, wow, even guys like that, yeah. Okay? What I do is every morning in the mirror, I brush my teeth and I look in the mirror and I say, wow, even guys like that? Okay, God will even save a sinner like me. And that's some of the great hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. Okay, with that being said, we have reached our hour, so we're not going to push it much further. But I did want to just bring something up. Right now, if you are uh, the kind of person that follows the news and follows politics and enjoys, you know, ulcers and anxiety. And it's easy to become disheartened. And I would love to tell you that on the outside, it's going to look better soon. Um, it is not. Hope, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but we still have a lot of mess that we have to get into. Um, and, uh, you know, $6 a gallon diesel fuel here in the Valley, and which means it's been up to $10 a gallon in other places in the country. Um, that's probably coming back. And something else that we haven't hit yet that's discouraging, but I don't mind being honest with you. 
Um, what is uh, Ukraine known for? What does Ukraine produce? Yep. How much of the world's grain? Yeah, a quarter of the world's grain. Guess how much they produced last year? Yeah. Okay. Um, there are serious problems going on. If you know uh, there are shortages around the world of fertilizer because they're, they're petroleum products, um, people can't get them. The cost of corn to fatten up cows has doubled in the last uh, three years. Um, and we're about to start feeling that with what is uh, what is coming. Timing-wise, we're finishing off all the food from the last good year that we had. And how much has everyone's gas bill gone up in the last year? Yeah, ours is 50%. 50% more for natural gas. Yeah, it's not looking pretty. And there are countries around the world that this winter are really going to start seeing some ugly stuff. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it's just what you want to do before you eat cake, right? Get everyone pumped up and excited. Okay, The reason I bring that up is because what, what I look to what encourages me, why I'm not worried about these things is because of where I put my hope and my trust. Who here is putting their hope and their trust in a Republican candidate this November? <laughs> Who here is putting their hope and trust in a Democratic candidate this year? I didn't think I'd see any hands on that one. Okay. <clears throat> Who is putting their hope and their trust in a king? Okay, that's right. Okay, and it's not one king on a list of several. It's one king on a list of one. Okay, there is no better time for the Christian to take seriously reading their Bible. This is where my hope lies. I read this and I read the amazing stories of how uh, God can feed thousands. God can protect people through a worldwide flood. God can take the Christian who says, look, I don't know what to tell you, but even though this whole country is bowing down to that statue you made, we're not going to do it. And I already know that you're heating up the fiery furnace that you're going to throw us in, but that doesn't change the fact that we're still not going to bow down. So your move, I'm not worried about it. And they marched off and they were thrown into the fiery furnace and the only thing that burned up were the bound, their cords that bound them. The guys that threw them into the furnace were engulfed in flames and died. God is the one that brings us hope, that can get us through anything, and it is so important that if we are not going to God in reading our Bible and in prayer, we are going to be scared, and we're not going to know what to do, and we're going to feel like all hope is lost and desperate, and it's going to be ugly. And just so we're all clear, anyone that wants more tools as far as helping you study the Bible— I have audio files, I have videos, I have workbooks, all of which I'm happy to give to anyone that wants them. If you 
want some help in doing a daily Bible study on your own, we have those resources. We give them away for free. Okay, anything I can do to help the Christian get on track with uh, going to God, you know, daily um, to get that. Uh, what does the Bible call it? Jesus said it's the daily bread, right? Just remember, I know that Friday nights are wonderful, and I'm—I mean, I'm just an amazing Bible teacher, and you all feel you all leave here filled up. Guess how long that's good for? Yeah, till more till, till tomorrow morning. Doesn't work. It doesn't help you tomorrow morning. Daily bread. Okay, so this is great. It's an encouragement to get together as Christians and read the Bible and study it and pray together, and that's wonderful. But it ain't gonna last for weeks. So we got to go to God daily to get that strength. And that's why I'm I'm not worried about it. Okay, I will continue to teach the Bible every week in America as a free man. I will continue to teach the Bible. Every week in America, in a concentration camp, I will continue to teach the Bible every week in America, in prison. Okay, no matter where I am, nothing's going to change. Coffee might get better, okay, but, uh, you know, nothing else is going to change, okay? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you greatly. Thank you for giving us a time to get together and read the Bible and pray. God, help us to do your will. Show us where we are falling short, what you want us to change, how we can be more like you. And God, please bring us that little bit of an encouragement that we need, because God, we know that you are on the throne. You are the one that's in charge, and we don't have to worry about it. So God, just help us to let go and trust in you Show us what your will is. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. And before we go...